Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Awesome, Patrick. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you here today. And we're going to be talking all about oxygen. So how did you decide to write the book, The Oxygen Advantage? What made you real passionate about that? I suppose I, I wrote my first book back in 2003, and it was for asthma. And I've written about eight books to date, including books for anxiety, functional breathing, um, craniofacial development in children, sleep, sleep apnea. And um, so pretty much all, all the books are around breathing, but none was about sports application. So all up, up until then, the books were all about, they were aimed mainly at people who were not well. How can you improve health by virtue of changing breathing practices? And the oxygen advantage was looking at a different slant. How about putting breathing exercises out there to improve resilience, to increase oxygen delivery, to open up the airways, to improve focus concentration, improve energy levels, to delay lactic acid and fatigue. And it's amazing what we can do with the breath, you know. I don't think people quite realize the potential of changing breathing. And it, this isn't just about taking a deep breath or a big breath. This isn't just about fulfilling the lungs full of air. And a lot of information out there about breathing is not correct. And it's, it's not really substantiated by, by any grounding. There's a lot of information that it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And it, it sounds to me like a lot of people breathe inappropriately. Um, that that's pretty common throughout this, and I've I've noticed that in in my own practice. So, what are some common mistakes people make with breathing? Well, I suppose number one is we should never be breathing through the mouth. Okay, if you're talking, you're going to have an, the odd mouth breath because you have to speak. Um, but how how are you breathing during physical exercise? How are you breathing during rest and how are you breathing during sleep? Mouth breathing just doesn't make sense because when you look at the anatomy of the nose and I use my nasal model, my nasal model here. Right. So for instance, when I look at the, the anatomy of the nose here, when you look at the mouth here, you see the tongue. You see there's absolutely no function performed by the mouth in terms of breathing. As soon as you breathe in, that air is going straight into the lungs. It's not filtered. It's not moistened. It's not conditioned, it's not regulated, it's not harnessing nasal nitric oxide. You're breathing fast using the upper chest. So mouth breathing typically puts us into a fight or flight response. It leads to reduced oxygen uptake in the blood. And also if we are breathing harder, it causes too great a loss of carbon dioxide from the blood. And as a result, then the oxygen in the blood doesn't get released so readily to the cells. So you think of all of those individuals who go for a run with their mouth open, they're totally inefficient, totally uneconomical. Absolutely doesn't make sense. If they switch to nose breathing, yes, it's more difficult at the start because there is a resistance imposed by your nose that's two to three times that of the mouth. But it's by slowing down your breath that when you bring, breathe air through your nose, you tend to take the air deeper into the lungs. And also when you breathe through your nose, you pick up a gas called nitric oxide and nitric oxide redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. So nose breathing is slow breathing, is deep breathing and is lighter breathing during physical exercise. This increases oxygen uptake in the blood. This increases oxygen delivery to the working muscles. Recovery is better. Um, and also in terms of the, the role of the diaphragm and breathing, your diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration. It's also there to provide stabilization of the spine. Um, it's there for, it plays a role in, for instance, the generation of intra-abdominal pressure. People with lower back pain tend to have dysfunctional breathing patterns because they may be breathing fast upper chest and not adequately having functional breathing for functional movement. And, you know, how would you recognize it? We, I see it all the time, but like, you know, the, the, in general, the, the medical literature will say it's about 10% of the population. 
And in asthma groups, it's about 30%, but I think it's higher. But it's interesting, individuals with anxiety and panic disorder, 80% of that group have breathing pattern disorders. And here is the bi-directional relationship that if we get into stress and if we get into anxiety, of course our breathing pattern is going to change. We are going to breathe faster. We are going to breathe more upper chest. So anxiety changes breathing patterns. But if then we breathe fast upper chest, that feeds back into anxiety. And also, if we are breathing fast upper chest, it's more likely to wake us from sleep. So breathing is going to influence sleep quality. Sleep quality is going to influence the state of mind and emotions. If we don't have a good night's sleep, we are not going to have a calm mind. If we don't have a calm mind, we are stressed, we're more anxious. The increased anxiety feeds back into breathing and the breathing pattern feeds back into anxiety. So you can imagine all of the people who are going for cognitive behavioral therapy, they're doing various, very techniques, but their breathing is not good. And it's not that they're having a panic attack in front of me. It just is that their breathing is just a little bit faster than what it should be. And it's a little bit more upper chest and it could be interspersed by a sigh, a regular sigh. And counseling doesn't change respiratory physiology. I will say, how can you have a quietness of the mind unless you have slow, light, and deep breathing? And I better quantify what I mean by that. And also unless you have sleep quality, good quality of sleep. So when we talk about light, slow, and deep breathing, light breathing is about having normal biochemistry or carbon dioxide in the blood. And that's determined by the volume of air that we breathe. Now, how often do you hear it in a studio? The instructor is telling the students to take bigger breaths, fill their lungs full of air. You can hear the students breathing during rest. The students might be doing minimal exercise, minimal movements, and yet they are exaggerating their breathing volume in a belief that it's going to increase blood flow and oxygen delivery to those muscles. But in actual fact, when we breathe more air than what we need, we get rid of a gas called carbon dioxide from the blood. And the loss of carbon dioxide causes blood vessels to constrict and causes less oxygen to be released from the red blood cells to tissues and organs, including the heart and brain. So for example, if I was to say to any individual, take five or six big breaths in and out through your mouth, how does your head feel? Most people will kind of get that, yes, their head feels light. You know, they get lightheaded, they get dizzy. And that's a sign, that's not a sign of super oxygenation to the brain. That's the opposite. We have to bear in mind, there's so much bad press out there, Anne-Marie, about carbon dioxide. And that wasn't always the case. Up until the 1930s, carbon dioxide was a gas that was used extensively in health. And it just took one doctor who started a campaign of saying that carbon dioxide was as toxic as urine. And that doctor is the surname of Waters based in the United States. And he turned all of the professions against carbon dioxide. But he failed to say that atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide are 0.04% of atmospheric pressure. And in the human body, in the lungs and arterial blood, we need 5%. We need carbon dioxide. This is not just a waste gas. This serves some of the more important functions in the human body. For example, primary regulator of blood pH is determined by our breathing. You know, normal blood pH is 7.365. If we are too alkaline towards 7.8, we die. And if we are too acidic to 6.8, we die. Carbon dioxide is a dilator of smooth muscle throughout the human body. So you can imagine all of those organs that have smooth muscle embedded in them, including the blood vessels, the airways, but many other organs throughout the body. And if we breathe too hard and we get rid of too much carbon dioxide, smooth muscle constricts that the body is in a state of tension. And also hard breathing has a, an agitating effect on the central nervous system. Pain, for example, is increased. There's heightened pain perception as a result of excessive volume breathing. And this can apply to women more so probably than men. 
especially women, um, you know, below the ages of, say, 50, because hormonal changes, including progesterone, have, have a huge impact on breathing. During the luteal phase of the monthly cycle, between days 10 and 22, the increased progesterone can increase hyperventilation, causing a lowering of carbon dioxide by up to 25%. That can bring on a lot more pain because there's, there's heightened pain perception, but also fatigue, panic, anxiety, um, and all of these symptoms. And even like this has been written about since 1905. And despite the influence of hormones on breathing, researchers, when they are looking at breathing, they very seldom will differentiate between male and female. And they very seldom will differentiate between the time of the month of that female. Because it, it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just one of those strangest things. And I've only started going down the female breathing route. I'm writing a new book. And um, I hope to have it finished in two months' time. So there's a lot of topics in that which I haven't covered in the Oxygen Advantage. For instance, type, diabetes type 1, diabetes type 2, we can influence the autonomic nervous system and stimulate the baroreceptors or pressure receptors in the major blood vessels to significantly improve diabetes control, even better than diet and physical exercise by changing breathing patterns. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, again, by coherent breathing, slow breathing. Epilepsy. And I'm not making these claims here without substantiating it. And yes, we don't always have the amount of research papers that we need, but it's only science now. Science has to catch up. But it, this is not new information. If you look at, go into PubMed, and if you look at slow breathing, you will see many, many hundreds, thousands of papers on the application of slow breathing to improve what's called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is a measure of vagal tone, how well the autonomic nervous system is functioning. Now, coming back to it, so I think when people talk about breathing, they, they should be looking a little bit more in depth at the detail of it. So I'll give you an example. If you go to a studio and you are doing breathing exercises, the instructor in the studio may be focusing on the biomechanics, but in the process, they are asking the individuals to breathe harder, so they are sacrificing the biochemistry. Um, when I'm working now, in the oxygen advantage, I focus mainly on the biochemistry, and I didn't focus enough on the biomechanics, and I didn't focus enough on the cadence of breathing. So there are three pillars. There are three dimensions just to functional breathing, and it's like the legs, three-legged stool. We need the three legs. We can't sacrifice one dimension of breathing in favor of the other. So now when I'm teaching our breathing exercises, we focus on all three dimensions. We focus on breathing light to increase blood flow. And as I said, that's all about carbon dioxide. And uh, it's very common for people who are breathing too hard to have cold hands, cold feet, and brain fog. That's a very common symptom. And many of your listeners will say, yeah, I've got cold hands. And I never associated with my breathing. Well, here is something that your listeners could do. Gently start slowing down the speed of the breath in and out through your nose, completely silent breathing. But breathe so slow, almost that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. So as you really slow down the speed of the breath coming into the nose, and then you have a very prolonged and relaxed exhalation, the objective is that your breathing volume is less than what it was before you started. With that, you should feel that you are not, you're not getting enough air. You should feel that you would like to take in a deeper breath. And that signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And if you do that for three to four minutes, you will notice increased watery saliva in the mouth, and you will notice that your hands are beginning to get warmer. So we can influence the 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the human body by literally doing the opposite to what people have been told for decades. They've been told to breathe more air. They've been told to take a deep, big breath. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's really, it's the same as food. Food is good. Don't overeat. 
Don't undereat, just right. And breathing, of course, is going to be more essential than food. And the basis that the organism perishes so much quicker when breathing is switched off. Um, so yeah, so it's the biochemistry and then the biomechanics in terms of breathing deep, but breathing deep in the true sense of the word. To breathe deep, it's evident by lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. So if you have your hands on your lower ribs, lower two ribs, as you breathe in, the ribs should gently pull out. And as you breathe out, the lower ribs should gently move in. But it's very gentle and it's silent. No animal is out there breathing hard because they have a belief of the benefits of big breathing. And very few animals go around with their mouths hanging open with the exception of the dog. And we as animals, we were nasal breathing or breeders innately up until very recent times. Mouth breathing is a modern phenomena and uh, it's not good. And 25 to 50% of studied children persistently mouth breathe. It has adverse effects in the development of their face, their sleep, ADHD, special education needs as a result of the impact of mouth breathing on sleep, and the list goes on. So yeah, so just to wrap off, because I'm talking a lot now and you're not getting a word in, but with cadence breathing or coherent breathing, we slow down the respiratory rate down to 5.5 and 6 breaths per minute. And this then stimulates the vagus nerve because it's the optimal it's the optimal cadence of the breath, the optimal respiratory rate to practice for periods of time to increase and stimulate the vagus nerve and to increase the sensitivity of baroreceptors. And both of these will feed into heart rate variability because the timing between our heartbeats should be random and it should be in rhythm. And there is a link between, there's a synchronization between the timing between our heartbeats and our breathing. And that's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. As we breathe in, the heartbeat should be getting faster. And as we breathe out, as we exhale, the heart rate should get slower. And that's a very good indicator of normal autonomic functioning. But individuals who are disturbed by stress, individuals with irritable bowel syndrome, COPD, depression, anxiety, asthma, fibromyalgia, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, and in many other conditions. And the research is out there now. They have poor coherence, poor heart rate variability. And in order to help to improve the, the automatic functioning of the body that's normally outside of our control, we can do that by influencing the breath to 5.5 and 6 breaths per minute. Nose breathing, light breathing, slow breathing, deep breathing. And where do you think we learned how to breathe like we do? Because looking back in my practice, I can say with uh, pretty, pretty good uh, depth that, that most people do not breathe like this. I would say probably about 90% do not. And there's definitely a lot of advice out there with breathing and how to do it and what the best way is. And we'll get into that in just a second. But why do people breathe so wrong? And I have a theory and I'm curious if you think that this is true. As a woman, I was a competitive dancer and I mm. was taught when I would breathe in, I would suck in my stomach and when I would breathe out, I like my stomach would go flat. And that was what was expected of me was never to see my stomach actually move, right? And it was sure. pretty much all in the chest, right? So sure. I know that that's personally where I learned to have breathing that was inappropriate and I've certainly worked on that. But I find that very commonly across the board with people that don't have the same training or background that I have. Where do you think sure. it came from? Well, I think it's, I think it's normal in terms of just fashion to be honest with you, and probably more so with females, but you know, it's going to be applicable to males there as well. You know, that people are trying to suck in their stomach, the chest is out and the stomach is in, 
but that's going to drive increased tension and drive probably paradoxical breathing. That as you breathe in, the stomach is moving in, and as you breathe out, the stomach is moving is moving out. Um, you know, I don't know where the where the like. If I look at the work of there's a yoga instructor from Fall City, Fall City in Seattle. Her name is Robin Rottenberg, and she's been teaching yoga for thirty years. Um, she must be in her late fifties, and she trained originally in India. Mm-hmm. And even when she did her training thirty years ago. She was told to take big breaths. Mm. And you see it absolutely in throughout, throughout the entire yoga world. And you can imagine the reach that yoga instructors have, you know, in terms of the population and getting that information out there. But Robin, about six or seven years ago, Robin developed asthma and chronic fatigue and sleep apnea, if I can remember correctly. Mm. And she started then wondering, well, I'm doing yoga, which is helping me, but there's something, there must be something else. And she came across the work that I was originally involved and still am, the Buteco method, a Russian breathing method that was developed by a medical doctor back in the 1950s. She practiced the Buteco method and it made a phenomenal difference to her asthma, to her chronic fatigue and to her sleep apnea. And that's often the application that we use the Buteco method for. But then she decided to go back to the sutras. She asked the question, how when, when yoga was originally developed? It about breathing hard. And it was nothing about those things. The yogi originally taught that breathing should be subtle, that your breathing should be so light, that you should not hear your breathing. And if I look at, say, you know, there's, a, there's one that I took from a book, Taoist Yoga, that the perfect breathing should be so silent, so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. And then I took another from a master, Chris Pei, a grandmaster in martial arts, And he said that there are three levels to breathing. The first level of breathing is to breathe so smoothly that the person next to you does not hear you breathe. The second level is to breathe smooth that you do not hear yourself breathing. And the third level is to breathe smooth that you do not feel your breathing. Now, so original instructors, they never emphasized hard breathing. And then if you look at the breathing that was enshrined by Bikram Shroudhury, um, if I pronounce his name correctly, and other individuals, and it was all about taking these big breaths. And if people say to me, and some people have said it to me, because I've been talking about light breathing, nose breathing, deep breathing for 20 years, and some people have said, well, they can't all have got it wrong. And I said, I think they have. And I think they've got it wrong in terms of any time that you tell somebody to breathe harder, it's not good because discovered back in 1904, an effect called the Bohr effect. And it was discovered by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr. And he said that the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood influences the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. In other words, hemoglobin is a protein in the red blood cells that carry oxygen. But for hemoglobin to release oxygen to where it's needed in the body, it's released in the presence of carbon dioxide. Just on that effect alone, it doesn't make sense to breathe hard because if you breathe hard, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs, which in turn reduces carbon dioxide in the blood. And as a result, hemoglobin holds onto oxygen more readily. It's not about the amount of oxygen in the blood even though we can increase the uptake of it, the PO2, by 10% by nasal breathing. It's really about how can we breathe to get oxygen to be delivered from the blood to where it's needed. And even if you think about sleep, you know, we know that snoring is not good. And we know that obstructive sleep apnea is not good. But if you listen to the breathing of individuals who are snoring, they don't breathe light. They breathe hard. So over-breathing is really a modern-day phenomenon, just as overeating. And the media has certainly got behind overeating. 
but it hasn't got behind over-breathing. In actual fact, the media is pushing over-breathing. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like I would say, and probably your listeners are thinking, well, what's he talking about? There's no way that he could be tr- it could be right. Do your own research. Look at BOHR bore effect. Look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Like you can open up your nose by simply holding your breath without antihistamines, without nasal steroids. Um, you can significantly improve your asthma. I would expect we can get a reduction in asthma symptoms by 50% in two weeks by putting these exercises into practice. We've had 20 clinical trials. I've been involved directly with about four of them, indirectly with a couple more. With obstructive sleep apnea, there's a great application of nasal breathing with tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, light, slow breathing to reduce the negative pressure in the upper areas to help prevent collapse. And a recent paper published in a larger scope showed that mouth breathing significantly increases obstructive sleep apnea. Any of your listeners who wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, they are not likely to wake up feeling refreshed. We should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. And for your male population, there is a link between obstructive sleep apnea and erectile dysfunction. And again, that's something that's affecting many men over 40 years of age. Well, let's start getting these men breathing through their nose. And the literature is there. You know, put in sleep apnea, put in erectus, and you'll see the papers. Put in oral breathing, mouth breathing, and sleep apnea, and you'll see the relationship there. Why not tell people start breathing through the nose? I've been taping mouths. For yes. 20 years. That was my next and question. Exactly. It's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was the best night's sleep. I was chronically waking up feeling chronically, chronically exhausted for years. I was going into school falling asleep at a desk because I had asthma, I had nasal obstruction, and for any breathing pattern disorder, such as asthma, it's not isolated to just asthma. You're also more likely to be tired. So I was constantly tired. And I, as a kid, am supposed to go into school. We were supposed to get good academic grades because our so-called intelligence, unfortunately, is measured by academic ability. And academic ability is only one, one aspect or factor in intelligence. But in any event, I got my grades, but I had to study 12, 14 hours a day. I came across the importance of nasal breathing in 1998, and that night, I taped up my mouth and I wore breed light strips on my nose. The first morning, yeah, not waking up, kind of, you know, just getting used to it. The second morning, I woke up after wearing the tape that night. My sleep was the best night's sleep that I ever had. And I knew I was onto something. And I also knew that it was working because I was able to unblock my nose by holding my breath. And for children, you know, it's... You know, this really has not, none of this has got the attention from the medical profession that it should have got, except for one sleep doctor who really came behind it. His name was Dr. Christian Gimeno, G-U-I-L-L-E-M-I-N-A-U-L-T, a Stanford-based medical doctor who was considered the pioneer of sleep medicine. He coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea, he developed the apnea hypopnea index. Now, sadly, he passed away about six months ago. For the last five years, he has been talking about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing during sleep. The critical importance. And he just, I remember being at medical conferences. I spoke alongside him at a few conferences. And I seen him stand up and he said to his doctor colleagues, you are talking about everything in the room, about the importance of breathing through the nose during sleep because it was overlooked. Now, again, when you look at the mouth, it serves absolutely no function. When you look at the nose, look at the amount of space occupied by the nose, the nasal cavity. If you were to put your tongue into the roof of your mouth like this and drag your tongue along the roof of the mouth right until you feel the soft palate, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So sitting above your mouth is your nasal cavity. Look at that space. Look at all of the functions that the nose is supposed to do. 
an American ENT, Dr. Morris Cottle, back in the 1930s, sorry, 1970s, he said that the human nose is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. You know, and I would say to you, your listeners will know this. Your listeners who are waking up with dry mouths, they're more likely to be snoring. They're more likely to be stopping breathing during sleep. They're more likely to have to get up to go to the bathroom during the night. They're more likely to wake up feeling unrefreshed, feeling lethargic. Now, the taping could be, you know, in terms of for children. And I'd have to just show you because probably that's what's coming into people's minds. And I'm not even sure if I have tape that's to give you an example. But for adults, we were typically using 3M micropore tape or even lip seal tape for adults for many years. But for children, I developed a tape because, of course, we couldn't, for safety reasons, if a child was to get sick. And then many adults are apprehensive about wearing tape. So I developed a tape called Myotape. And it goes as follows. It's, it's elastic, cotton elastic. I take the tape. This is the child's one. I can't find the adult's one. So you'll get the idea from it. And I'm stretching the tape by about 30%. Now, the stretchability of the tape is bringing my lips together. But I can still, if I need to open my mouth, and that will be sufficient to maintain nasal breathing during sleep. And we would always recommend that people wear at least for 60 to 90 days, because that's how long it takes to change a habit. It's not 21 days, but certainly two to three months. And people, yeah, the first couple of nights are getting used to it, but thereafter sleep quality is improving and intertwined with this then is focus and concentration. Like if we are fatigued and if we, our attention is stuck in our head, how do we have the capacity to focus on really what we want to focus upon? And when I'm talking about focus, I'm talking about the absolute application of 100% of our attention without distractions of the mind where we can apply all of our attention on the subject matter. We need sleep quality for that. And we need sleep quality for restoration. But if we're not having that, our productivity is affected, our stress levels are affected, and that's going to reduce quality of life. Number one, breathe through your nose versus your mouth. Number two, don't breathe hard. When you're at rest, even for a few minutes, Gently slow down your breathing and breathe a little bit less to feel air hunger and see what that difference does in terms of your blood vessels and activating a parasympathetic response. Number three, have your hands either side of your lower ribs. As you breathe in, your ribs gently move out and as you breathe out, your ribs gently move in. Number four, if you want to, practice slowing down the breathing to a cadence of five seconds in and five seconds out but don't take the big breaths. Breathe in and out through your nose, slowly in for five seconds, slowly out for five seconds. If you have insomnia, practice it for 15 minutes before sleep. Have your mouth closed during sleep. Wear tape on your lips if, you, if you're waking up with a dry mouth. Do your physical exercise with your mouth closed. And if you are stressed, it's difficult for people who are anxious to meditate because the, the undercurrent of emotion is too strong. Instead, you could do small breath holds. Breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose for five seconds, let go, breathe normally for 10 seconds and continue and repeat it. Because when you hold your breath with small breath holds, you increase blood flow to the brain. So instead of people thinking that I will increase blood flow to the brain by breathing harder, we should be thinking that, yes, I can increase blood flow to the brain by doing gentle breath holding because you increase blood flow to the brain by gently increasing carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's carbon dioxide that's a vasodilator to dilate the main blood flow, the main blood vessels supplying the brain with blood. So simple things, you know, and, um, uh, you know, okay. If people are still a bit skeptical, we'll try it for two weeks. You have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And what, 
you know, we hear about, for example, the Wim Hof method versus, you know, um, your method. What is the difference between the two methods? Um, So we also do breath tolling, but we don't do the hyperventilation before breath tolling. So all of the exercise that I was talking to you about up until now were down regulator. That's to activate the parasympathetic response of the body. And that's functional breathing. So half of my work is improving everyday breathing patterns. That's half my work. And then the other half of my work is doing breath tolling to stress the body. So the only difference between the Wim Hof technique and the oxygen advantage breath holes are the Wim Hof technique involves 30 breaths to get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. With the loss of carbon dioxide, which is the primary drive to breathe, the individual can hold their breath for much longer because they don't feel the need to breathe because their CO2 levels have been depleted. And with that, because they hold their breath for so much longer, their oxygen levels drop to even stronger than what we do. So the Wim Hof technique is definitely a stressor and it's a stressor to cause the body to make adaptations. And in Cox's paper, it has been shown that by stressing the body, by influencing the sympathetic nervous system, that it led to a reduction in pro-inflammatory cytokines and an increase in anti-inflammatory. So when individuals were injected with endotoxins, they were better able to resist the flu. Now, for almost 20 years, we have seen people coming in with chest infections and different conditions, head colds, etc. And we have seen significant reductions as well. I didn't always know what it was down to. We were doing breath tolling with them as well. We don't do hyperventilation before a breath told, probably because I'm trying to change people's breathing patterns. And I've been trying to address chronic hyperventilation for many years that I don't want to start then doing acute hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. And another aspect is that I'm too well aware of the effects of hyperventilation on blood vessels, on on blood pH, on the bond between um, hemoglobin and oxygen, and the stress that it has on the individual. And then also, with, with what I'm doing is, I don't want to drop the blood oxygen saturation below 60%, because there's a risk of people passing out. So we do a lot of these exercises during running, during sprinting, and I can't take that risk. Whereas if you hyperventilate for 30 breaths and you blow off so much carbon dioxide and then you do a breath hold, because you can hold your breath for so much longer, you can drop your blood oxygen saturation below 60% and you could have fainting or syncope as a result of it. So there's, you know, in terms of like, what are the main differences? Yeah, we don't do ice baths. Um, we don't do the ice baths. We don't do the hyperventilation. We do the strong breath holds, but we also do functional breathing. And um, yeah, I suppose like it's, there's similarities and there's differences as well. Yeah. So it's interesting in my practice, I think that more people need to actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system versus the sympathetic nervous system. Obviously that has its place and I'm sure other yeah. people see different things, but in my practice, I really see, I need to see more sympathetic because people are in so much fight or flight and have so much severe adrenal fatigue, IBS, you know, you name it, whatever autoimmune, generally from being stressed and being high performers. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that where the vagus nerve really comes into play. And also a prolonged, a prolonged and relaxed exhalation. Like the measurement that we use in the oxygen advantage we use is the Bolt score. And Professor Kiesel, he's a professor of physical therapy for, from Evansville University. I think it's in Colorado. But he looked at 51 subjects and he wanted to develop a breathing pattern, a screening tool to identify dysfunctional breathing for the athlete population. And he looked at breathing from a biochemistry, biomechanical, and psychophysiological point of view. And he came to the conclusion that breath hold time, it was exactly the bowl score. He didn't call it bowl score, but when you look at the paper, it's exactly described. You take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose, and you time it in seconds how long you can hold your breath for until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And his conclusion was, if your bowl score is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing 
isn't present. So really, you know, and also as the bolt score increases, the respiratory rate slows down. And here is the thing. If you have an individual with a bolt score of 10 seconds, they will naturally have fast upper chest breathing. And as the bolt score increases, their breathing becomes slower. And with a bolt score above, say, 20, 25 seconds, their breathing tends to be diaphragmatic. And the other thing is, Anne-Marie, if you look down at your chest, and if you take a breath through the mouth, when you breathe through the mouth, you will see it activates the upper chest straight away. Mm-hmm. So in terms of getting people to switch off, in activating that parasympathetic response, we need the natural resistance of the nose to slow down breathing because it's the slowing down of the breath and especially the exhalation. During rest, the exhalation should be about one and a half times the length of the inspiration. And it's that prolonged exhalation that's primarily driven, that's primarily parasympathetically driven. And we can tap into that by altering and slowing down and extending the length of the exhalation to activate that balance or to bring the person from a sympathetic tone into a parasympathetic tone. And you get an idea that you're on the right track if you've got increased watery saliva in the mouth. You know, something that's interesting or something that I noticed, and you've talked a little bit in this interview about athletic performance, Mm -hmm. but I'm a big mountain bike rider and we're clearly up at altitude being in Colorado. That's where I am. And one thing that I noticed um, is when I'm really pushing hard, I tend to be breathing in and out of my mouth and I tend to miss features or riding over certain things when I'm, when I'm really stressed or really pushing too hard mouth breathing. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I'm moving a little slower and not mouth breathing, I tend to be able to make that, which is really fascinating for athletic performance. And um, so what are you seeing with athletic performance and breathing? Because I know that it does increase it a substantial amount, your performance that is. Yeah, we've seen quite phenomenal changes um, from every level and even elite level. Some of the papers, if you look at Waron's papers, which have come out of Europe, you'll see some of them up on our own website when you go to science. But he looked at repeated sprintability in elite rugby union players. And repeated sprintability is your ability to do an all-out sprint followed by a very brief recovery before an all-out sprint again. So he got 21, initially 35, but rounded off to 21 21 elite rugby players divide them into two groups one group was doing 40 meter sprints on a breath hold after an exhalation same as what we do and the other group is doing high intensity interval training tested them for four weeks and at the end of four weeks the repeated sprint ability in the group who were doing breath holding increased from 9.1 to 14.9 the group who were doing high intensity interval training increased from 9.8 to 10.2 or 10.3. So here was something that normally if you're working with elite athletes, if you can get even a 1% gain, it's it's significant. That's unheard of. But the reason being is because athletes haven't tapped into breath holding. And athletes aren't aware of how how their everyday breathing is impacting their performance. And you were talking about missing things or, you know, there's a different flow state when you breathe through your mouth versus when you breathe through your nose. Uh, Dr. John Dulliard, he's an Ayurvedic doctor from the United States. I'm not sure. I think he's Colorado, but I'm not sure. He, he was a co-author of a paper back in 1991. They looked at athletes who were breathing through their nose during physical exercise, and they looked at their brainwave states, and they were in flow. They were in the zone versus athletes who are mouth. And I think it's part throughout our evolution that our ancestors were innate nasal breathers. And the only reason that we know this is we know it by, even if you look at Neanderthals, and Neanderthals researchers a couple of years ago said that when they did a composite or redeveloped the faces of the Neanderthal, that they had quite large nostrils. So they knew by the craniofacial shape that 
these individuals had a facial structure, including a larger nostrils and nasal cavity, to be able to handle airflow, not just during rest or sleep, but also during physical exercise. And if you were to go to a natural history museum and you look at the development of the face, you will see that our ancestors had well forward growth of the face. They had wide arches. There was no such thing as crooked teeth. Crooked teeth are not necessarily genetic. They are influenced by genetics, but there's a bigger impact as the environment. Mouth breathing, thumb sucking, pacifier use, not chewing food. You know, like how many kids now are chewing their food? They're buying food that's completely chewed for them. McDonald's, Burger King, all of these fast food outlets. And even the, the food from the supermarket shops that are already emulsified, you know, even smoothies. And as a result, then the children, they have a pair of jaws on them, but they're not using them because they're not having to use them. But never did that happen throughout our evolution. We had to chew our food. And breastfeeding is another thing. And I don't, I don't blame mothers in this regard because it's this pressure that society puts on young couples to pay off mortgages that, you know, everybody has to work crazy hours. It's absolutely an insane situation. But breastfeeding is not just about nutrition. Breastfeeding is about development of the muscles of the face. The baby has to work to get milk from the breast. And by working for that milk, it's helping to develop normal craniofacial structures. And these muscles are necessary then for nasal breathing. So, you know, and like, I don't know, sometimes I get frustrated with it. And I've, you know, I've seen, and it's because I've seen so many people over the years, like seven and a half, 8,000 people, books have reached out to, I don't know how many tens of thousands, you know, a big cohort, a large cohort of the population. We have seen consistent results over and over and over. And I came from a background of having chronic asthma for 20 years. Not one doctor ever said, Patrick, breathe through your nose. Your lungs are uh, the issue with asthma. So why breathe through your mouth? Because whatever chance that you have, you have absolutely no chance of helping your lungs by mouth breathing. Your nose is a gas called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide was first identified in the, the exhale breath of the human back in 1991. It's antiviral, by the way. And now there's clinical trials using nitric oxide for COVID. But I'm saying to people that your nose is a, is a source of nitric oxide. And I'm not saying that nasal breathing is going to reduce and prevent COVID. But what I am saying is that your nose is a first line of defense of airborne viruses coming into the body. So not only do you have nitric oxide there, but also you breathe less air. You know, I was in packed, packed trains flying continuously right up until... The 17th of March, I flew back from LA. Mm. And before that, I was in London, everywhere. And I did two things when I was in crowded environments. I breathed through my nose, but I also breathed hardly any air. Because if there was any chance of a virus around me, I wanted to take in a minimal load because it's the load of virus that you bring into the body that's going to increase the risk of infection. And not only that, People who were infected, if they mouth breathe, they have a 42% greater water loss through breathing. Mouth breathing is emitting a greater, much greater amount of water into the atmosphere. This increases the risk of transmission. Now, if somebody has a respiratory condition, including infection by COVID, they will naturally breathe harder and faster through an open mouth because they feel that they are not getting enough air but it's by that that they will increase the risk of transmission because your nose is capturing the moisture on the exhale breath. And that even talks to dehydration. Individuals going for a mountain bike ride over a period of time are more likely to have dry mouths, throats, exercise-induced constriction. In old folks' home, you know, as we get older, we have a tendency to and these these unfortunate people are suffering from dehydration as well. I think the application is, is you know, when we break it down, um, it's got a tremendous possibility here. 
and it's really about getting the information out there. And there's a new book written by an American journalist called James Nestor. I only have the galley copy. Okay. And you'll see this, was, this book was released about May, about a month ago. Yesterday, when I looked at Amazon, it, it ranked 220 or something, and all sales on Amazon of everything. So to have a book positioned, this book is, is poised to become a major bestseller. And you'll see so many topics in this book that was written about in The Oxygen Advantage. And he's gone into a little bit detail and he's included other topics, including the Wim Hof technique. But it's, it's a tremendous book. And like I'm always delighted to see that there's books on breathing getting out there and his book is doing well because this is a topic that has been absolutely neglected for far too long. And it's Agreed. time that yeah. we started looking into it. Completely agree. I think, you know, everybody focuses on diet, 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 yes. diet. I want to get better. I'm going to focus on my diet. People aren't thinking about sleep. They're not thinking about breath. They're not thinking about yeah. sunshine. And some of these things are gaining more popularity. But the one thing that has not completely gained the popularity yet is breathing and breathing techniques and, and breath and oxygen. It's so, so, yes. so critical, right? Yeah. So yeah. thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, in terms of health, go to butecoclinic.com and that's B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. And in terms of sports performance, it's oxygenadvantage.com. And our book is, my book, The Oxygen Advantage is, is on Amazon. And we're on Instagram, we're on YouTube. So there's plenty of videos there and things like that. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.